Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And today we are joined by Ariel Bogle. Ariel is a journalist and an analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's International Cyber Policy Centre. Thanks for joining us, Ariel. Hi, thanks for having me. So your area of expertise is uh, misinformation and disinformation. Have you uh, been busy at all lately? Oh, just a little bit. Just a bit of that going around, I think. There's a few things that we can talk about, but one I wanted to get to first was you recently assisted in an investigation for the ABC's background briefing on a character by the name of Catboy Cammy, who sounds like, sounds quite innocent. Uh, what could be threatening about a charming cat boy? But in fact, it's quite sinister. <laughs> could you tell us who is Catboy Cammy and why is he a concern? Yeah, so maybe I'll just give a bit of history about how I came across him. So earlier this year, I was working on some research around the far right here in Australia and just lurking in some telegram channels, as one does. And I came across some clips of a young man on Omegle. Omegle is like a sort of chat roulette style online platform where you you sign in and then you just kind of get linked up with people randomly over a video chat. And I found this guy, a clip of this guy wearing blackface and kind of confronting kids, uh, especially black kids in blackface. And it was a pretty confronting video, I guess. I found it shocking. Obviously, it was some sort of attempt, uh, quote unquote, dark humor, but it really missed the mark. And I was surprised to find this guy actually had an Australian accent because I've kind of seen this kind of content before but usually by guys with American, Canadian, British accents, not so much an Australian accent. And so when I came across this video, I started to dig in, realised this guy was actually from Queensland. And then uh, when I started to dig a bit further, found out that he'd actually travelled to the United States and hung out in 2020 with figures like Nick Fuentes of America First, with uh, Baked Alaska, who shows up at the January 6th Capitol Hill riot. And it's just it, it became a kind of interesting story, I suppose, of how an Australian got caught up in this global far-right movement and also about the kind of weaponization of humour and online platforms in the pursuit of, I suppose, causing controversy, red-pilling people, however you want to call it. And then we started digging into that with Alex Mann of the ABC. 
So how did this kid go from doing pranks in uh, uh, Ipswich to hanging out with people like Nick Fuentes and uh, and the Gropers? Yeah, well, it seems like Catboy Cammy, I mean, he'd been streaming for a long time and had kind of started to make a name for himself in certain circles, streaming on platforms like DLive, YouTube and other places. And he had a lot of his accounts removed, but he, I suppose, started to attract the notice of uh, American far-right figures in like late 2019, 2020. And he, I suppose what they found compelling about it, and this is, you know, in Nick Fuentes' own words, was that he was kind of a young guy. He was an attractive guy. That's, they actually said that. Um, and he created this kind of provocative content that was getting a lot of attention, a lot of eyeballs. And there was something appealing in that for them. They like, I think to sort of opportunistically glom on to anything new, anything that can bring more eyeballs to their content. I think that's sort of how it's the link up started. And of course, I suppose Catboy Cammy uh, must have seen himself in that movement to an extent uh, and being compelled to travel to the United States to participate in this kind of far right uh, content economy and actually shows up at some of the Stop the Steal protests after Trump lost the election and some other events like that. Just to dial it back a a minute, uh, so Catboy Cammy is the name. Where does that come from? Um, it's like, I mean, like everything in the story, it's extremely internet-y. I mean, you know, there's like a, sort of a catboy anime crossover there. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot into the name. I mean, he's had plenty of other sort of pseudonyms ranging from the internet-y to the like outright uh, gross on his gaming profiles and things like that. But of course, his real name had been kind of obscured or had gone to quite a quite considerable lengths to hide it, I would say. But with Alex, um, we were able to dig into that. Alex actually got a tip off from the United States about his real name, which was Tor Brooks. And that kind of emerged from Cammy's interactions with US law enforcement, which he discussed on his own platforms. But we also were able to confirm to an extent. What uh, impact did Tor's exposure have on his career as uh, a catboy? <laughs> Well, you know, it's an interesting question. I, I guess like there was money to be made. There was attention to be won. Uh, it does seem like at one point he was a pretty prolific streamer on DLive and was probably making a decent income there. Uh, this is one of the parts of the stories, as with a lot of these figures, which you always want more information about, like just how much they were able to monetize this kind of content. But in, in any case, he did manage to get to the United States, uh, link up with these pretty significant figures in the United States, like Nick Fuentes, as I mentioned. But it sort of seemed to go downhill towards the end of 2020. He was kind of denounced by Fuentes, who thought that his content and his live streams from some of the Trump events were oh, went too far. I mean, when I say went too far, were too clearly too clearly white supremacists perhaps <laughs> for Nick Fuentes who wants to hide it, hide those kinds of sentiments behind a veneer of irony and humour to an extent. And then there seems to have been an interaction with US law enforcement of some description and he's gone quieter, not quiet entirely, but streams far less and has actually lost a lot of access to some of those major um, platforms that he was using before, like DLive, like YouTube. What function do you think, political function, do you think a figure like uh, Tor or Catboy serves in, I guess, the promotion or support for right-wing extremism? Well, it's a good question. I think there's like this idea of providing gateways into far-right ideology that a lot of different people have talked about. 
And sometimes when we found co- content of Catboy Cammy's, you know, uh, interviews he'd done with other figures and interviews with um, Russian journalists, actually, he's for some reason extremely popular in Russia. Um, there's a lot of Russian language content about Catboy Cammy, where he's kind of gets more explicit about using his online presence to uh, introduce people to far-right content, to ideas around white supremacy, around great replacement theory and things like that, Um, I think is, you know, just another example of that kind of weaponization of humor by these figures, as well as the kind of the use of these online tools to build profile, to shock and provoke and get a reaction as a way to appeal to young people to an extent who might not yet have the kind of tools to see that for what it is. So it's an interesting function. I think he's quite a good example as well of how even though a lot of Australians um, think that's something that happens over there in the United States or in Europe, that it happens here too. And that given these sort of borderless platforms, an Australian from Ipswich can participate in quite a significant way in these ecosystems. Something that sort of perplexes me about his popularity on the far right is he's not exactly who you would choose as the poster boy for sort of a hyper-masculine far-right extremist movement. Why, why is it that they can see past the, you know, the cat boy suits? <laughs> well, you know, I think he's useful as so far as he's popular, getting a lot of attention and doesn't cross the line. Um, as I said before, like there are clips where Nick Fuentes kind of denounces him in late 2020, especially after a sort of uh, stunt that Cami pulled at a Stop the Steal rally in uh, Arizona in November. He kind of gave a pretty explicit naming of the Jew kind of speech at this protest that got a lot of attention. Clips of it appeared on Twitter. I think that's when um, Catboy Cammy got, came to the attention of a lot of people outside these kind of circles and as outside the circles of far-right researchers. And I think they were quite willing to dismiss him and sort of ignore him once he had crossed that line. So he's useful to, to the point um, when, he's no, when he's not and then he's given up and sort of I guess that's how it works in these circles where, you know, I, I guess it's like the point of which your usefulness ends is where they're quite willing to dismiss you. You mentioned earlier that he had been making perhaps a, a decent amount of money on DLive, which I think leads us into the report that you recently published through the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Buying and Selling Extremism. Can you tell us what was the uh, impetus for writing this report? Well, I had been looking at other reports that had been done on far-right fundraising in the US and UK in particular. There's a great one from Bellingcat from earlier this year, and the Institute of Strategic Dialogue published a report bankrolling bigotry in 2020, I think, on the kind of online financial platforms used by hate groups in the United States. And I just thought there was a gap in Australia. I couldn't really find much work that had been done just providing a kind of map of the online fundraising ecosystem here in Australia as it's used by far-right entities. And I thought it was maybe a good point to start on Telegram just to identify a handful of Telegram channels and kind of map out from there the different tools that were being used. And ultimately, I found uh, more than 20 different funding platforms that were used to solicit, process and earn funds between January 1st and 15th of July this year. Presumably, one of the advantages of using, in this example, encrypted transactions and currencies doesn't expose the individual's 
receiving or making donations to the public. How important is this kind of disguised form of financial wizardry to its ability to, or the ability of the right-wing extremists to raise funds? Well, I think there's a difference here between the like the perception of a secret transaction or an obscured transaction and the reality of it. So I definitely found uh, in my sample the use of cryptocurrencies, a, a, a variety of the channels like posted wallet addresses for Bitcoin, uh, for other cryptocurrencies, and uh, quite a few posted wallet addresses for Monero. Monero, of course, is what's known as a privacy coin. So it goes a bit further than Bitcoin and some of those other earlier cryptocurrencies in I suppose, trying to obscure who sent like a transaction and who's receiving it. But I I talked to a few different people around cryptocurrencies and how they can be tracked. I think it's important to point out, as was pointed out to me by John Bambanek, who's a computer security researcher in the United States, who's tracked various far-right fundraising via Bitcoin and other platforms, that there's still a kind of point of scrutiny when it comes to transferring money into cryptocurrencies and transferring it out. I mean, that's not really one that's accessible to journalists and researchers like myself, but if you were law enforcement trying to track these transactions, that's kind of a crunch point. Like People need to get this currency out of Monero and back into Australian dollars. So it's perhaps not quite as secret as they might expect. But I think it is like interesting to think about Monero in the kind of context that a lot of these far-right entities that I'm looking at and that we're talking about here are really quite sort of anti-state, needless to say, and so want to move away from kind of traditional banking, traditional services. And there's also quite a long history here of you know being pushed off these platforms under public pressure. And so moving to the cryptocurrencies, like at least they seem in some ways to be anti-state and a bit more secretive. So you know, it's a kind of complex space, but a really interesting one. I guess uh, one of the reasons I ask is because uh, a few years ago, there was a, an electrician from Queensland who became rather infamous for being the business sponsor of the Daily Stormer. Mm. And I don't think that his career had flourished since that was publicly exposed. No, and I think the Daily Stormer now only accepts Monero donations, right? Uh, they made that decision after they got deplatformed from like countless different financial platforms and transactions and even like popular cryptocurrency exchanges like Coinbase reportedly shut down accounts attempting to make transfers in Bitcoin to Daily Stormer back in 2017 so they was they were getting they were under pressure from all sides and have since announced a move to Monero exclusively besides crypto you also highlight a number of other uh, payment services including sort of these micro payment services like buy me a coffee. In your investigation, did you find that many of these platforms had taken any steps to prevent right-wing extremists from using their service? Well, you know, it's important to point out most of these platforms weren't built to support far-right fundraising, but there's definitely a variety there in how they're enforcing, like uh, enforcing or scrutinizing how they're being used for that purpose. Most of the platforms I looked at had terms of service, had a use policy that banned hate speech or the use of their platform to conduct you know activities that targeted people based on race gender sexual sexuality and the rest if we look at buy me a coffee it's quite an interesting one i mean i'm sure on this show you've discussed uh, mr thomas sewell many times um, he's mm. facing a variety of ch- uh, charges at the moment and his a telegram channel associated with his name has been uh publishing 
repeatedly uh, fundraisers for his legal fees via Buy Me A Coffee. And it seems like every time Buy Me A Coffee does take that fundraiser down, but the fact that they keep using that platform suggests they're at least able to collect and uh, remove donations from that platform, at least for the moments that the uh, fundraiser is up. So it's, it must be useful in some respects. Um, and of course, there's you know a whole range here. I saw people promoting subscriptions on uh, platforms like Subscribestar and Patreon. There's Buy Me A Coffee, Ko-Fi. There's also like PayPal Me pages, which is kind of page you can set up on PayPal for yourself where people can send you money. All the rest, as well as those kind of live streaming platforms that allow you to tip people and support them, you know, DLive, YouTube, and Entropy is an interesting example as well. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au, and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Ariel Bogle about financing far-right extremism. Sewell is currently facing a variety of charges, and it's my understanding that the um, when he promotes or others promote on his behalf the possibility of making donations, that's to fund his legal defence. So it's not the case that this is necessarily criminal activity that's being supported. What do you think is the problem with these forms of fundraising? Why should it be of concern to the general public? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think there is, uh, we need to draw the line that this is not necessarily legal activity. It's certainly not illegal to uh, raise money for somebody's legal fees in any case. I just thought it was important to to try and understand this ecosystem because here in Australia, um, we are, I hope, um, starting to look more closely at the relationship between the right-wing extremist sort of content ecosystem online funding and acts of terrorism. So if we look at the Christchurch terror attack, that report certainly was self-funded by all accounts. That's what the Christ, the Royal Commission in New Zealand found. But it has been widely reported and the report also notes that the Christchurch terrorists like made, you know, at least 14 donations to right-wing extremists, anti-immigration groups and individuals while he was in New Zealand. So I do think it's important that we start to, I suppose, think more about how this ecosystem is supported and propped up because of the risk that access to this ecosystem can inspire, I suppose, acts of violence. So it's a very delicate space, absolutely. And certainly any crackdown on fundraising via these platforms, especially given they were mostly not built to support far-right fundraising, you know, there's a big risk here that people's accounts will be wrongly removed. I mean, that's a long-standing issue with funding platforms like PayPal, as well as payment facilitators like Visa and MasterCard. So it's really a space where we need to tread very carefully. But I do think it's important to understand this ecosystem and understand that kind of the blurring of the line uh, between fundraising technologies, financial technologies, and content technologies. And this is something that's been pointed out too by Jessica Miller, who's a, a terrorism financing expert, I think, from the United States. She really talks about this blurring of the line between financial technologies and content technologies. And so it requires us to uh, use the old tools of um, countering uh, terrorism financing, of course, but also start to consider how we can extract more transparency and accountability from these platforms as well. Many of the users on the far right or the extreme right are uh, often very careful in their public expressions about avoiding explicit support for violence, and yet um, it's arguable that the kinds of rhetoric that they've engaged in create a kind of an environment in which violent action is arguably 
rendered more likely. Can you say a few words um, on that subject? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a section of the report that um, was a bit longer than I thought it might be at the beginning when I set out. I have a sort of defining right-wing extremism section and it's it's very complicated. You know, I talked to a range of kind of legal and uh, fire rate researchers, uh, experts in Australia and overseas to kind of frame how I was defining right-wing extremism. Because, of course, if we take like a law enforcement perspective, if you consider ASIO's definition, for them right-wing extremism is support for violence to achieve political outcomes relating to ideologies like white supremacism, like neo-Nazism. But I think we are starting to look more at right-wing extremist content act- and activities that doesn't fit very neatly within those kind of older existing counterterrorism and violent extremism frameworks, and not least because right-wing extremism is, no, is not really limited to membership of like a defined group, as you guys know very well, and they sort of groups, they they emerge, they reform, and we also need to look to at like sort of lone wolf attacks that can emerge from an environment or a content ecosystem of right-wing extremism, especially, as you said, those online content ecosystems that can operate as a culture of inspiration for violence, I suppose. Just, I guess, uh, one thing that occurs to me is it can be difficult sometimes to distinguish between straightforward hate speech or extremist rhetoric that's coming from a marginal political actor and more mainstream forms of discourse which arguably have a similar kind of function. I'm wondering how you distinguish between what might be considered to be extreme and what might be considered to be more mainstream in terms of examining uh, online discourse. Mm, it's a, I mean, it's a great question and one that really, you know, bears a lot of thinking about. I mean, there, I wouldn't – this is the difficulty, right? I think that there is um, certainly – a way we need to figure out to to talk about both the kind of far-right actors that I'm looking at in this report and the kind of telegram channels where they're sharing, you know, content that explicitly targets people based on race, gender, sexuality, and the rest, and how that links up and uh, how and its relationship, I suppose, with media in Australia for uh, for one thing, as well as the rhetoric of certain politicians. And there's like a there's a trajectory or a sort of line here. I don't pretend to have a clean answer about it. Um, maybe if somebody wants to fund a, another report, I will have <laughs> I'll have a better go at uh, creating some neat definitions for us. I guess to pivot slightly from the financing of right-wing extremism to sort of perhaps the financing of uh, the conspiratorial right, uh, this week around Australia we witnessed or didn't witness uh, a large truckers' strike, which – was a little bit confusing about who was organising it, but I noticed that they were raising quite a bit of money. Did you follow this story at all? Yeah, absolutely. I've been. Uh, I was looking a few weeks ago at the anti-lockdown protests that happened um, in late July, and so looking at some of the Telegram groups that seem to have been involved in organising them, and then you know that sort of morphed into this truckers' protest. And of course, wherever people are, there's an element of grift. Uh, unfortunately, I've seen a couple of different crowdfunding attempts to raise money for the truckies, quote unquote. But, you know, people just have set up these fundraisers with no clear names attached, uh, no clear uh, explanation of who the money will go to, how it will be distributed. And so I guess that does raise the risk that people are just kind of potentially getting cheated out of money or 
you know, or maybe it is being raised with the best of intentions, but the easy access to these kinds of range of online fundraising tools uh, can obviously bring a lot of benefit and can really support people when the government fails to, or, you know, in a protest movement, there are, there are really important functions for these tools. But Unfortunately, in this case, there, uh, as always, there does seem to be a, an element of grift and there have been plenty of uh, figures here in Australia who seem to have raised you know, thousands of dollars linked to a lot of these anti-lockdown movements. Uh, Avi Yemeni and his Rebel News fundraising comes to mind. Uh, we're recording this on the 30th, so the original protest was scheduled to be on the 31st, but it seems that a uh, They've tried to distance themselves from uh, anti-Freemason activist Karen Brewer by holding a bit of a fizzer on the 30th. So I think it just goes to show what happens when you uh, you give up on your core message. Well, a lot of these movements don't have a core message, right? Like I I would um, struggle to to delve into, say, one of the pro-trucky um, Facebook groups, which has like, more than 40,000 members actually at this stage, and come up with a clear ask from the group. And that that's not new. Protest movements often find it, you know, struggle to find that central message. But it does seem like these movements have become a kind of catch-all for all kinds of grievances, some justified and some... Uh, on the more on the conspiratorial side of things. Yeah, obviously, we all agree that the getting all the Freemasons out of Parliament is one of the justified ones. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Although I don't know if I've ever met a Freemason enough to have a strong opinion about whether they're good in Parliament or not. Ariel, in terms of the dangers that right-wing extremism presents to, uh, I guess, Australian democracy, what would you say is the kind of the real nature of the threat, and is it uh, being exaggerated? I don't think the threat is being exaggerated. I think there's an element here of necessary correction. I mean, of course, uh, there's been a lot of attention played over the past few years or the past decade or more to what ASIO would now like us to call religiously motivated extremism, um, of course, uh, ex- extremism linked to groups emerging from the uh, Middle East like ISIS, etc. And I do think there is a necessary correction here to look at the far right here in Australia because Australia does have a long and documented history of activity by far right individuals and groups, some of it resulting in acts of violence, some not. But I think we don't really understand the nature of the question here yet because Australia, unfortunately, um, has a lot of gaps in understanding right-wing extremism here. I mean, hate crime is rarely prosecuted we don't really have a hate crime register like the FBI operates in the United States. You could uh, speculate that crimes that may have been motivated by hatred for somebody based on race, religion, uh, ethnicity, sexuality, etc., cetera, uh, are just being um, charged as other types of crimes, you know, straight assault, etc., rather than crimes motivated by an offender's bias. So, I think we're really still failing to understand the nature of the problem here. And so more scrutiny can only be beneficial. Well, Ariel, thanks so much for joining us. If people want to find you on Twitter, they can do so at Ariel Bogle. And of course, you can read buying and selling extremism on the ASPE website at aspie.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, Andy, that's all we've got time for. We'll be back next week. Global Intifada is up next. See you then. Do a happy
Victoria, to keep us safe, we know what to do. There are only five reasons to leave home. Shopping for food and supplies that you need. Exercise, both within five kilometres of your home or as close to home as possible. Care and caregiving. Authorised work or education if you can't do it from home. Getting vaccinated as soon as you're eligible. Masks are mandatory indoors and outdoors. And if you have any symptoms, get tested. For the latest updates, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne, a 3CR supporter.